Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, December 13th. Monday, December 5th, 2022, was an important day in science. Reaching ignition in a controlled fusion experiment is an achievement that has come after more than 60 years of global research, development, engineering, and experimentation. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC, and that was National Nuclear Security Administration Administrator, how's that for a title, Jill Ruby, announcing what she is calling a huge breakthrough in fusion energy. Why do we care? Well, it's a kind of nuclear energy that is supposed to be safer and cleaner than fission energy, the nuclear technology that's been dominant and always controversial so far. So for the first time, scientists from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California have created a fusion reaction with what they call a net energy gain, as the Financial Times put it. After decades of research on fusion reactions, this new breakthrough marks an important milestone in the development of fusion technology, and it has big implications for society. Arthur Turrell has a PhD in plasma physics from Imperial College London and is author of the book The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet. So he's a good person to have with us now to explain how scientists achieve this milestone and what it might mean for the future of energy, for climate, for humanity. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Toro. Welcome to WNYC. Great to be here, Brian. Thank you. Can you start with a little 101? Because a lot of people are hearing these excited-sounding headlines and saying, oh, great, I'm supposed to be excited about fusion energy now. Well, I never heard of fusion energy. So why <laughs> should, what is it, and why should we care about this? Yeah, so nuclear fusion is the process that powers the stars. So it's literally star power. So you've actually enjoyed it yourself if you go outside each day and, and feel the sun's rays fall on your face. Or, you know, if you go outside at night and see those pinpricks of light, all of those stars, that's all powered by nuclear fusion. And essentially it works by taking quite small atoms and combining them to make bigger atoms. But those bigger atoms have a tiny bit less mass than the smaller atoms that go into the reaction. And that difference in mass comes out as energy, just as Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared says. So in some ways, this reaction is all around us in the universe, but it's been very, very difficult to do it on Earth. It's been very difficult to do it on Earth. Does fusion energy, uh, well, why do we call it nuclear energy? You know, we think of nuclear as things with dangerous radiation for people. Is this in that category? Well, you know, the word nuclear just means anything that involves the nucleus of an atom. So that's the bit right in the center of an atom, uh, not the electrons, but the bit where the the protons and the neutrons sit. And um, when changes happen to the nucleus, what you tend to find is there are much higher energies involved and it changes the structure of the atom itself. So it's not a chemical process. It's a nuclear process. And, you know, like any reaction, it could be good. It could be bad could be useful, could not be useful. It just so happens that 
a small class of, of those nuclear reactions do create um, radioactivity um, that is a problem for humans. Um, but there are lots of other ones that, that don't. Right. And so fusion in that respect, I mean, if we were, and I realize this is way down the road, but if we were to go to a massive fusion energy economy, would we have anything like the challenge with nuclear energy of the present, which is to say we're worried about accidents and meltdowns at nuclear plants. Uh, we're worried about the storage of the byproducts of that nuclear energy uh, underground or wherever and what it can do to the environment, to the drinking water, et cetera. How much of that would be obsolete if we were using fusion energy on a widespread basis? Well, I think you've really hit the nail on the head of why people are so excited about nuclear fusion here. But I should say, you know, um, most fusion scientists are actually pretty keen on fission as well, because fission produces carbon free energy. And if you look at the kind of number of deaths per terawatt hour, you know, so per amount of electricity generated, fission actually looks pretty safe. But of course, it does have problems. Um, it has image problems. And it does have problems like you mentioned, like radioactive waste and meltdown. And the great thing about nuclear fusion is that there's just no chance of meltdown at all. It's very, very hard to make it go. And it's very easy to make it stop, which partly explains why it's taken us so long to get to this point. But also, one of the primary outputs from fission reactions, so the nuclear power plants we have today, is radioactive waste. In nuclear fusion, you still get some radioactivity. You don't get any radioactive waste from the actual um, fuel stuff that you put in. Um, what you do get is that the chamber where the nuclear fusion reactions take place, at the end of the lifetime of the plant, we expect that to be radioactive, but we expect it to be quite weakly radioactive and safe within about 100 years, rather than the thousands of years that some radioactive waste from fission is. So those are some reasons why people are excited. But there are many others as well, one of which is that the fuel supply is very plentiful. You can find it in seawater and there's enough for at least thousands, but probably millions of years of energy for everyone on the planet to have the same energy consumption as people enjoy in the US and the UK. Jim in Glenhead on Long Island. You're on WNYC. Hi, Jim. Hi, Brian. How are you? It's great to be on today. I, I think that I've been in this industry for 20 plus years. I'm a member of the executive team at TAE Technologies. We're the largest private fusion operator in the world. And to your your expert's comment, you know, this is something that is going to be driven by capital. Uh, it's very, very expensive to build large nuclear reactors that are that are safe and can prove out fusion is operating. But today's event removes a really incredibly important milestone or a roadblock, I should say, which is everyone always says we can't do it on Earth. And today, Lawrence Livermore Labs announced that they've achieved it. And that hopefully will open up some floodgates in terms of increasing the amount of capital that could come into the private fusion industry, which I am confident is going to get there a lot faster than any major governmental uh, programs. Interesting, Jim. Thank you very much. Uh, but on the science and on what was really achieved that's being officially announced today, um, the scientists, as I understand it, were only able to create a little bit of energy surplus from this resource-intensive reaction. So what did it cost to even produce a little bit of net positive energy, and what would it take to have it affordable on a commercial basis? 
Well, <clears throat> yeah, so um, this reaction, this experiment, only produced about three megajoules of energy. So that's about enough energy to boil three kettles. Um, so it's not a very uh, much energy in absolute terms. And of course, you know, uh, as I said before, if you really wanted to commercialize this, you, you'd have to do it three times, uh, sorry, 10 times a second. Um, there are lots of other problems as well. So once you've generated that heat, you have to take it away. And, you know, the, uh, the end of the power plant is pretty much like how we do power generation in lots of other contexts you know we, we heat up water turn it into steam and then have that steam drive a turbine and the connection between the heat coming from the fusion and the turbine people haven't done that yet and uh, you know as jim said um ultimately the design that was used to to achieve this stunning result historic result um is very big very capital intensive and i think where you know whether it's public whether it's private one of the really big things that is going to have to happen is miniaturizing all of this technology, making it modular, making it scalable. And then we can learn how to do it much better, much faster, too. Do you agree with the caller who, I guess, works in a private sector fusion energy development company that the private sector is likely to race ahead of government in developing this? I think it depends what part of the process we're talking about. And I would never say... Never. If you look at the um, scientific metrics to date, um, the two leading approaches to fusion are the National Ignition Facility and um, magnetic confinement fusion. So using magnets um, as championed um, by some people in Europe. So the joint European Taurus, a big experiment in the UK, uh, uses that approach. Um, and so uh, those two experiments have gotten have made the most progress in terms of scientific metrics. But, you know, as we move away from science to engineering and economics, I think the private sector has a really important role to play. And at some point, there's going to be this handover. And by the time electricity from fusion is on the grid, uh, of course, there's going to be a huge, huge role for the private sector there. When and where that kind of handover takes place, and, and maybe it's more of a partnership, actually, you know, than working together, um, a bit more like the SpaceX model. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Um, but I think both are going to be crucial. Yeah, because I, I imagine government would have a huge role to play in the coming years if the public and public officials were to decide that it was in the public interest uh, to invest in development of fusion energy science because they did see it as you know a massive, cleaner energy source of the future. I mean, it sounds like it's such a long way from profitability that it would take public resources, it would take government money to continue to develop the scientific uh, basis on which some companies might make money in the in the future. That's what it that's what it looks like. Steve in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Steve. Hi. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> like your your guest says, um, this has incredible potential, and and you know, to give uh, the whole world the same standards that we in the U.S. and Great Britain enjoy in terms of energy. Um, but that's going to bring with it a huge amount of uh, geopolitical, I would guess, turmoil. And I suppose, hand-in-hand uh, hand with this great development, someone or many people are going to have to be watching and planning for the future vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, uh, the politi geopolitical uh, aspects of this. You mean like... Joe Manchin will say, no, we still need coal. Let's not throw government money at fusion energy research. You're talking about that kind of thing? 
No, well, yes, I, <laughs> not exactly. I'm talking about more like lunatics like Vladimir Putin uh, or, or, or smaller countries act with access to tremendous amounts of unbridled power. How will they use it uh, for, for better or for worse? And, you know, we, this has to go hand in hand with uh, increase in democracy, I would imagine, because, you know, we're giving, uh, we're unleashing a lot of power uh, to, to give to people and to a world that may or may not be able to deal with it properly. Steve, thank you very much. Dr. Turrell, does your thinking as a plasma physics uh, expert uh, go all the way there to the geopolitical? <laughs> Well, it, it's something I talked about a little bit in the book, and it's it's quite interesting that um, you know Steve's raised this concern. I would ask, where do the majority of our fossil fuels across the world sit today? And sometimes they are in states that have used their power to try and get what they want that aren't particularly democratic. Um, so uh, we can look at what Russia is is trying to do uh, with Europe and, and Ukraine. And, um, you know, they already have the power and they're using it uh, in, in kind of geopolitical machinations. One of the benefits, I think, of nuclear fusion is that the fuel is something that you can just find in, in regular old seawater. And the that that kind of democratizes access to at least the fuel stuff. And it's a kind of technology that you could build anywhere. You know, you don't have to have an oil field. You don't have to have a, a coal field or, or a gas field. So I think, you know, it will reduce uh, the kind of national security uh, energy uh, reliance um, on on some of these states that perhaps aren't as democratic as, as we would ideally want. Can you talk a little bit more about the science of that? You've said twice now that we find the um, elements, or I'm forgetting the exact word that you use, but the, the resources to make fusion energy in seawater, which of course is very abundant, but fusion energy is supposed to be the kind of energy that's produced by the sun that we're supposed to learn how to produce here on Earth. So if this is the kind of energy that the sun makes on its own, what what exactly is in the seawater? Yeah, so in the sun, um, the, the this precise fusion reaction is a slightly different one, different input uh, materials to the one on Earth. The one that people are trying to do on Earth uses hydrogen, actually, but it's two special types of hydrogen. Um, so you have to kind of filter out the seawater to find those. So one of them, one of these special types of hydrogen is called deuterium, and the other one is called tritium. And deuterium is outrageously common. So in every kind of briny bathtub of seawater, there's about five grams of um, deuterium, and we know how to extract that as well. Uh, the other ingredient is something called tritium. It's, again, a special type of hydrogen. That's a little bit more difficult because it's very, very mildly radioactive, um, probably the safest radioactive thing that is radioactive. Uh, but because it decays over time, it doesn't exist in significant quantities on Earth. But what you can do is make it from um, an element that is plentiful, uh, which is lithium, which is found in ores and, of course, found in seawater as well. It probably won't surprise you to hear that a lot of the tweets we're getting are pe from people who are skeptical um, in one way or another. So one person writes, what will be the nature of the waste and its storage? No possibility at all of some kind of ca catastrophe with so much energy. Someone else writes, 
Haven't we thought that most of our energy sources were limitless until they weren't? What if we radically alter the biochemical balance of the seas in, say, 50 to 100 years, since you said this comes out of the sea? And someone else writes, has this fusion experiment been independently duplicated? This might be excitement over something that's not real. Uh, so pick any of those questions and answer them. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> all really interesting questions. I really like the one about whether this would affect uh, seawater. Um, it's a really great, great question. As I mentioned, um, you know, there's actually a huge amount of um, of fuel for fusion in seawater. Um, but the first type of fuel I mentioned, deuterium, that special type of, of hydrogen that's just there already in seawater, chemically, it's exactly the same as regular hydrogen. So you have it in your bodies, um, you drink it in water, you wouldn't even notice that it's there because chemically it, it makes no difference that it's um, got something different in the nucleus. So getting rid of deuterium won't make any difference to life in our seas or biodiversity. Getting rid of lithium um, to make this other type of hydrogen called tritium, that might have an effect eventually. But I think it's important to say that the amount that's uh, available in seawater of that would keep us going at US levels of energy consumption for millions of years, potentially. So um, I don't think it, it, it's a big risk. Of course, if we get thousands, millions of years down the line, maybe we need to think again about um, what we're doing. Um, and of course, that might create problems, you know, uh, for the future. But I think there will be other uh, other elements can do fusion, which we might have tapped into from the moon and other places by then. Um, so I don't think it's one that we should worry about now. Alan in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Alan. <clears throat> Good morning. Thank you. Um, I, I'm positive about the possibility of the abstract. My problem is related to what the other woman mentioned earlier. It's not just that it competes as a priority with solar and wind, but in real time, given the composition of our Congress so closely split between Democrats and Republicans, the chance that you're going to get a vast increase of federal money going into fusion without taking away from solar and wind implementation, which is critical to reducing our carbon output, it seems like that competition in real-time implementation is a dangerous thing, and the only way we can avoid it is to ratchet up the pressure for reducing carbon by coupling any additional money for fusion research and engineering with a really strong carbon tax. Otherwise, it's just going to take money away from solar and wind, and those are the resources we know we have available to cut carbon output today. Dr. Tarl? Yeah, thanks for raising this, Alan. I mean, you know, I'm not super, super familiar with the U.S. system and the kind of con constraints there in, in terms of budgets or, or you know, and I suspect that the, the money for kind of solar and things probably comes from a different part from this very much more research kind of grassroots science type funding. But I think the point you raise about, you know, um, other, other kind of ways that this could be funded. I mean, you know, I, I've spent time working as an economist as well as a plasma physicist. Uh, physicist and um, you know economists love a carbon tax um, because it kind of restores a, a problem in the market which is that you know carbon uh, people aren't paying the true price of carbon when they use fossil fuels um, so that sounds like a, a really sensible suggestion but of course ultimately um, it's up to our elected representatives to to decide how to allocate the resources 
Yeah. So, Alan, you see a political fight ahead as somebody who I know has called the show many times uh, with respect to fighting climate change and imposing carbon taxes and things like that. Uh, yes, that's just a practical matter because you still have some climate deniers in the Republican caucus. So the chance uh, they're going to ratchet up engineering. Yeah. Alan, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so as a last question, Dr. Turrell, this was one experiment that produced a net gain in energy at one location, the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California. You're in the UK. Um, is there a global network of scientists working on this together, or is this competitive in its own respect of a scientist here, a scientist there, a lab here, a lab, a lab there, or is it only Lawrence Livermore in California? What's the, what's the scientific uh, groundwork here? So it's definitely collaborative. And in fact, I myself, when I was doing my PhD and, and working in fusion for a couple of years afterwards, um, actually worked on the Lawrence Livermore experiment, even though I'm based in the UK. And I had many colleagues at Imperial College London who were working on the Livermore experiment as well. And um, so, you know, Livermore draws in people from all over the world. Uh, but there are other approaches to fusion as well, some of which the US is also involved with, um, which are working on fusion. Perhaps the most famous of those is a machine that's being built in the south of France called ITER. And collectively, the countries that are contributing to that represent over half the world's population. Um, so, you know, as it should be, this is a project for all humanity. And, you know, pretty much every society under the sun is working on it. Well, folks, the headlines are saying this is at least potentially a really big deal that they've now for the first time produced a net energy gain through a process known as um, fusion energy at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. Now we know more about the science, more about the potential economics, more about some of the potential politics around this, too, thanks to Arthur Turrell, author of The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion, and The Race to Power the Planet. Thanks so much for joining us today. This was great. Thank you for having me, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.